Hello and welcome to the EACCNY Pulse, a podcast platform that showcases transatlantic business insights from our members on both sides of the pond. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild and I'm the Executive Director of the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York. Our series, A Look into the Crystal Ball on the Future of Finance, features high-level European and American executives with whom we will explore how the pandemic has reshaped priorities and expedited innovation within the financial services industry. We hope you will enjoy this series and I encourage you to rate and subscribe to the EACCNY Pulse on your favorite podcast network. Hello, I'm Richard Beals, Global Deputy Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, and I'm hosting this edition of A Look into the Crystal Ball on the Future of Finance with Gerald Walker, brought to you by the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Gerald Walker is the Chief Executive for the Americas for ING, the Amsterdam-based bank with just over a trillion dollars worth of total assets. Despite the accents you will hear here, both he and I are based in New York. Welcome, Gerald. <laughs> good, morning, good morning, Richard. Gerald, we're aiming to look in the crystal ball, and one big issue for the future is climate change. Joe Biden's now the president here. For some, that's a turning point in how seriously the United States is going to take this issue. ING is headquartered in a place where corporate and financial thinking on climate damage is arguably further ahead. How, how does ING factor that into decision making across the board, particularly when it comes to, to measuring how companies, clients, borrowers are dealing with climate change? Yeah, look, it's, I think it's, it's true that Europe has spent more time thinking about this in the last decade than, uh, than the US. I do, however, think the US will catch up very quickly on, on, on the subject. Right. But within all of that, you know, I, ING as a firm, sort of being based in the low countries of Europe, has always been extremely conscious of climate change and the impact it can have on, on well-being. Uh, so it's not surprising that as an organization and as a country, uh, you know, it was pretty much a first mover on exploring all things climate related. And in the firm of ING, we, we've been looking now for a long time at how our, how as a firm, as a bank, we can actually influence, how we can actually use finance to potentially help fight climate change. I think we're still the only organization that looks at every asset that goes into its loan book through a sustainability lens, both for a borrower and also as a transaction, all on relative sustainability rather than absolute. And we look also at different sustainability-linked financing techniques. And as a, as a first mover, have brought a few innovations into the market over time. Uh, things such as sustainability-linked loans, which were the margin changes based on the sustainability rating of a country of a company. Also, the same in the derivatives market. So, all of these have been trying to find ways to harness the the, the power of the banking system to to exact positive change. But you're right, Richard. You know the. The measurement of all of this is the the point that uh, that we haven't, as an overall sector, got uh, right. uniform yet. And how how do you I mean how do you look at that? I mean you have different ratings from different organisations, which none of which like you know like S and P or MSCI, none of which seem to be universally used. BlackRock, which is obviously a very influential manager has stated a preference, I think, for sustainable accounting standards and this organization, TCFD, or this 
standard called TCFD. What what do you use, or what would you like to use if you could choose? Yeah, look, there's so many of those out there. You get you get lost in the acronyms, don't you? But I I, I think the <laughs> You know, we've seen one very good step forward this week where you had the the disclosure regulation in the EU starting to bring uh, some uniformity to ESG investing. So one side of the spectrum, you're seeing that. In the banking sector, I think it's fair to say that we don't have a standard as yet. We, 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 use, a, we use a number of them. But what we did ourselves as an organization was that we wanted to create a way of looking at how we measured the effectiveness of the transition of our lending portfolio and meeting the, the, the Paris Agreement goals of two, of, of two degrees. And we called it, you know, we called it the terror report. And when you're leading in this space, you can sometimes be a little bit lonely. So you you you, you actually we put it out there as an open source uh, framework to try and measure transition across the uh, our lending portfolio, but also invited other people to work with us so that we can develop and co-develop. But we also, and I think that's important, we also publish it. You know, we we've right. set goals for our underlying portfolio. Um, to see it transitioning on a science-based methodology uh, towards helping Paris. And we, we publish that annually, so we hold ourselves accountable in the market for how well we're doing. And I think that's what we would encourage all people to do, because ultimately, you know, banking firms can, you know, can and should be catalysts of change and, and positive change. And how do you... You know, how do you find that's received? I mean, on the one hand, do you find yourself saying no a lot? Is that a sort of accepted thing for ING to do sort of globally? And then also in, in the US, what, where, where does that go with borrowers here? Yeah, look, uh, yes, you do say no, by the way. Yeah, I think uh, that's the, <laughs> that is true. But I think more importantly, when we were thinking about this, we wanted the approach to be inclusive rather than exclusive uh, in, in, in the sense that you know, some of the biggest industries in our society are the, the most carbon intensive. So when you look through, um, through how we report on terror, we report on nine big sectors in there. It won't come as a great surprise. We, we report on power, we report on fossil fuels, automotive, shipping, aviation, steel, right. the list goes on. But the, these are big parts of our, our economy. And, it's, and because they're carbon intensive, the transition is really important there. And so whilst there are certain parts of the industry that we have definitely said no to. We, you know, we've been very clear that we, we will be transitioning completely out of thermal coal by 2025, and we're well right. on track for that. But the others, you know, we want to work with our clients uh, to, to help transition them and help them with products from the banking sector that can, that can help them set goals within their own companies as well to, to make the transition. And how does that map out? How does that map out looking ahead? Do you do you does the organization, I guess, globally have dates like that 2025 date for doing certain things or does it go market by market? And and perhaps we can drill down a little into the into the US and say, well, what kind of things have you done here that that present a model for that for that future in that crystal ball we're looking at? Yeah, look, if you 
it, it maps out differently sector by sector. I think I, I think right. is, is is the answer. We we have set set transition plans for each of the sectors I I mentioned. Uh, some are ahead, and and most of them are are not exit strategies. They're they're engagement uh, strategies. To be to be very clear. There are strategies where we believe we can we can work with a large uh, number of, of our clients to to help meet the goals. And let's again be, be clear on it. The, you know, so many of these companies are are focusing heavily on this as well. So if we partner with them and help create financing frameworks for them, you know, we we will design green financing frameworks with our clients to to show what they can report and what they should report in order to uh, to meet the external requirements. And you know, how does that play out in the US? Maybe a little differently in, in, uh, if I was looking five years ago, what would be happening in the US is that the you know our fine our sustainable finance team would be having discussions with CFOs and treasurers to discuss the implementation of sustainable strategies based on our European uh, right. brand and knowledge. And sometimes those were, you know, that, that was virgin territory in, in, in some cases. Now what we're seeing and what we're feeling is a, is a degree of inundation in terms of inbound calls to meet sustainability officers alongside those self-same uh, CFO and, and treasurers. So you can see the progress is made do you, do you put that down to the politic political change, or or just to that plus everything else that's already that was already sort of building up? No, oh, gosh, I, it was it was building up pre uh, pre political change. Um, when we sort of speak across the market with with companies, and when we uh, look at consumer surveys on this, there, there there is a push and a pull on this. There's an expectation not just from investors. Uh, not just from customers, um, but also from staff uh, for companies to be moving in a different direction on this. And, you know, none of it's a quick win. That's the thing. The, the, the important point is taking the initial steps. And in, in terms of your financing, speaking with, your, with, with somebody who knows something about it, and you know, obviously from my point of view, I'd always say that's ING, but, it's a, but it is speaking to somebody who say, what can you actually do? And you know we saw you know, we see some very big examples of this. Great example in the U.S. the tail end of last year was with Aligned Energy, which uh, is a is a leading data center provider. Now they did a one billion dollar sustainability linked financing with us last uh, September. Now nobody would think initially of data centers as being big issues from a sustainability perspective, but you know we've been talking with them now with with that sector for some time now because of the amount of energy they actually consume. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. The, these are critical parts of American infrastructure now and into the future, and making them uh, sustainable is, is is really very important. And the leadership in Aligned is is really market leading in that in, in, in that space and it's, it's fantastic to work with clients like that. That's a great example. If we could just shift back for a little bit from the long-term crystal ball gazing to the short term and talk about the pandemic that we're all hopefully now on the way out of. Um, 
a lot of trend watchers seem to think lockdowns and such have accelerated things, shifts that were happening already, whether it's technology, lifestyle, work style, and so on. What's what's your perspective? I guess sustainability, sort of how people think about that may be part of this too. What's your perspective, whether it's about your work inside ING or the clients and businesses, how they're talking about it or both? Look, Richard, I think at the top level, um, the macro, you know, COVID will have proven to be a great accelerant. It's emphasized, you know, beyond reasonable doubt that we are that we have global problems that require global solutions. So it does tie back to the whole sustainability uh, discussion that we've that we've just had. I, th- I think it has created an awareness of how things can spiral out of control and why we should redouble our efforts to deal with things. And I, I think as you know, the discussions will become uh, much more serious on um, climate change as a consequence of COVID. No doubt about that in my mind. But then looking from the inside of ING, the way we're going to work has been irrevocably changed. And I think for the better, the ability to work remotely over distance, and particularly when you're looking at the US where the distances are so huge, it's a fantastic opportunity to do away with some of the ghastly commuting that people have had to do uh, uh, in the past. And really just taking the, you know, with my leadership team looking at what has been a really difficult year and trying to take the positive aspects out of it. And if we're if we're actually good at that, we will find there are great benefits uh, of creating a much more flexible, diverse, accepting work culture, a culture which says that you don't have a a need to be in the office, but you should be at the office when you're needed. Uh, the office is a connector in that in, in that sense. Right. So I think- I'm, I'm certainly hoping I don't have to go back to the office all every day. That would be just great. Um, <laughs> those, are, yeah. those, are, those are certainly some of the positives. One, one of the things that I always worry about with, for example, sustainability, but it can be other things, whether it's mental health and all these other things, is that when you have an economic downturn, companies start thinking, okay, that's that's a nice to have now. It's not a necessity and we're trying to save money and maybe we put all that on a back burner. Do you think we're past that with sustainability now? Yeah, I think maybe reflecting back on what I said earlier, I have a sense it's probably the opposite movement. I think that even those clients pressured due to economic conditions are seeing the revenue generating benefits of the whole sustainable movement. And quite frankly, in a, in a more wider sense, the need to build future-proof businesses. So, so I, I think it's there. I, and I, but when I look at it, I, I think the shift from nice to have to necessity was something we were starting to see long before COVID. Uh, we, 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 we saw that trend coming through in surveys that we'd done of U.S. executives in 18 and 19, where we saw the, the influence of sustainability growing quite dramatically. You know, we saw that it was the influence was 45 percent in 2019, whereas in 2018, so only a year earlier, it had only been 29 percent. So I, I think we've seen that move already from it being a let's call it a marketing strategy um, to something a uh, much more strategic for for companies. And can you, as a financier and other banks, help drive the bus here? I mean, 
another question is always does this have to be led by governments with regulations does it can it be led by corporations in across enough sectors to make a difference financiers also you you guys also also have to make a living so you can't just not lend to people you have to as you say engage and do what you can what what is the mix or the order of importance in in who takes the lead on this stuff or or would you just say it's everybody all the time kind of answer yeah look i think i think it's collective and you know it's it's not for um the the finance industry to to lead government or other way around uh in in reality on this i think we we're maybe looking in the us as you know if you look at certain parts of the change that needs to happen we may be looking at a lost decade here that we uh, that we need to um, that, that we need to pick up. You know, compared to Asia or Europe, it's probably as much as a decade. Hmm, right. And if you look at that, that you either take that and say, "Oh my God, we're so far ahead, so far behind," or you actually look at it and say, "Hey, this is a wonderful opportunity to leapfrog." And I, I think. Right. That should be the mindset as you come out of the trauma of the last year. It's that opportunity to get ahead by a very focused, probably bipartisan ambition where the finance sector is really willing to step in. There is no uh, lack of liquidity for the right things in this market. Private funding you know, can support change and it will. And I think you know, right. we always see that in the U.S., I suspect in in the in the infrastructure space sometime very soon, and that will require leadership from all from all parts of uh, of, of of the spectrum that you mentioned. And you think the U.S. banks, who obviously do dominate the U.S. market, are on board? I mean, I realise they are gradually to a more and more extent, but I don't think many of them are as, if any, are as far as far ahead as ING in thinking about this stuff. And again, you have to make a living. So it's in some sense, it's whoever, you know, the borrowers will go to whoever puts the least hurdles in their way, right? Yeah, I look, the American um, finance industry has always impressed by its flexibility and its ability to adapt to uh, the needs of the society around it. So I, I have no doubt that you will, you, you will see catch up being played uh, and it will play very quickly. Great. I wanted to run some... I can never resist running a few hot uh, hot market topics by guests on a podcast like this because you always have an interesting perspective. Uh, do you mind if I do that? Just a couple. And this can be your personal views. Gerald doesn't have to represent ING. And I guess, again, looking in the crystal ball, uh, cryptocurrencies, are they going to be with us so enthusiastically in the future? I think they're there to stay, Richard. But to what level of regulation is required for that particular uh, technique is a is a question I, and any, any signs that are useful to you in finance look at this stage where it crosses over with our business at the moment is we you know we, we spend quite a lot of time looking at the blockchain and how that can be uh, more uh, useful for right. clients in our business and you know we've done some wonderful work in that space about how do you change 
the 18th century way of dealing with trade finance into an uh, into a distributed ledger technology, which makes it uh, open to the, at its different stages of the of the trade journey, and that blockchain piece connecting with crypto, I think, could be quite interesting. Um, I don't know how that will all play out, but uh, but it you know it may be interesting in that space. In terms of more mainstream related to our business today, it's not really in our um, in, in, in our ballywick at the moment, uh, Richard. But you know, you you have to keep on watching. I'm 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 personally quite interested to see how the IRS has dealt with it because the IRS has you know they they're now slipping it into the tax returns as. Right. Uh, you know, from a, it's not not treated as a currency; it's treated as an asset. So I think that's, uh, you know, these are quite interesting trends to watch. You know, where where does it sit between currency and asset? Uh, how how does it compare to gold versus uh, dollars? All of those things still very very early days. Right. Interesting how companies are supposed to treat it if they own it too. I I was looking at that not so long ago, and that's also not quite like gold, not quite like currencies. Intangible asset seems to be the default at the moment, which doesn't seem right. Well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? How, how, how can you buy a, a Tesla car with an intangible asset? But apparently you <laughs> Exactly. All right, so let's leave the market there and just, just um, finish up with a question about ING. I mean, in, in five to 10 years from now, with all of this or any, any other trends you see, what, what will look different about a big bank like ING, do you think? Look, I think like any leader of any organization, I'd like to think that we're an even stronger organization because we've helped our clients uh, and empowered them to build better businesses. That's the that's the first thing you, you, you would hope for. The second thing is I suspect the way we work will continue to change. Uh, I think the, the flexibility that we will be experimenting with in the, in the next uh, in the next years will will actually change the landscape of our business quite considerably. We're in our retail bank. We're very much mobile first, um, and that has been accelerated during the uh, during the pandemic. And our wholesale business, mm-hmm. I expect to drive that direction to uh, to pick up as well. So I, I think it all ties together into a a really interesting future for banking, which is uh, so different to the uh, to the office pods that you would have seen in uh, in Wall Street uh, only five years ago. And we can maybe finally think bank branches will start disappearing, do you think? Well, it, it, it's it's the biggest conundrum in the U.S., actually. <laughs> in Europe, they're, they're largely all coffee bars already. In, right, in, in right. the U.S., I would think so. It seems to have taken a long time, but, I, I, yeah, I have to think the same thing. Gerald, fantastic. Thank you very much. That concludes this podcast episode with Gerald Walker, Chief Executive for ING Americas. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Richard Beals with Reuters Breaking Views. We hope you enjoyed listening to this program hosted by the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of EACC and Y Pulse. Please rate and review this podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on transatlantic business insights and to better understand the complexities of the international environment we work in. For more information about the European American Chamber of Commerce and how to join our dynamic network, 
please reach out to membership at eacny.com. We look forward to hearing from you.